This is um, the last of Paul's defenses we're going to hear. We'll see some beautiful consistencies in the last few chapters since he's been arrested. And I think a little bit of background into King Agrippa will really, really help in a lot of this. So, um, if you are new to the Bible, the New Testament focuses on the life, starts historically at the life of Jesus the Christ, the promised one for since the fall of man, and actually even before that. And then the book of Acts follows with what takes place once Jesus has ascended with his church, which is where we're at. We're roughly at 5960 AD, somewhere between those two years, which kind of puts things a little bit into perspective. And I can't wait to get into the word with you, so why don't you pray with me, please? God, I thank you so much for what you're doing here tonight, for the cleansing and the the moving, for the beautiful way that you minister to us, for the glorious way that you meet us and draw us close and just love on us. God, you know what we need to hear tonight. You know every one of us implicitly, every atom and molecule that we make that makes up our physical body as well as every emotion, priority, regret, and memory that makes up who we are, ambition. And God, I just pray tonight that you would minister now profoundly to each of us. You know what we need to hear. So I pray you would speak to each one of us individually and corporately as well. Corporately, that we would hear you as a family. Individually, that we would hear you as individuals. That we would hear you specifically how you are the answer to every need. And so, God, I just pray tonight that you would now immerse me in your spirit, that I would disappear. and Freshly anoint me, God, that you would appear and that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do and redeem every second now. May we be brought to the cross. May we be encouraged. May we be uplifted. May we be challenged and and greatly bolstered in our faith now. And so, Lord, now I just pray that you would do now everything you intend. So we commit this time to you, Lord. Be glorified. In Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Um, Lauren, or um, actually, I'm sorry, Rachel, before we even get into the text, do you have the King Agrippa family, twisted family tree in there? I should have asked you that earlier, but now that we're here. I'm going to tell you a little story that starts this, but in order to do that, it would be wise to get an understanding of a man that we're going to see tonight named King Agrippa. He's Agrippa II. Um, Those of you who were with me last week, you know that we discussed a bit of the Herod family line. But suffice it to say that King Agrippa II, of course, is the son of King Agrippa I. That should be a no-brainer. 
who is the son of Aristobulus, who is the son, thank you, of Herod the Great. Now, if I were to kind of walk you through just this part of it, and I won't go through the entire thing, but it's important to note a little bit of background about this fella, specifically because that's what we're going to see tonight, and we can see why Paul is so excited to speak with him. Paul has been, as we're aware of, a political prisoner for two years. Nobody knows what in the world to do with this guy. No matter how hard they try, they just can't seem to really figure out what to do. And the reason is, is that Paul seems to be an enemy to the state, but he's doing nothing wrong. And that becomes really difficult when you're trying to be fair and just. Now, with that in mind, and I'm looking for my laser pointer that I'm not finding here. Um, let me just do it this way. Herod the Great, as you were getting aware of, was, was, very, very, um, was very paranoid. And one of the reasons he was very paranoid was because he kind of got his kingdom by intrigue. Has several sons of which he murders most of them, including the one that is in uh, the point of it, which is Aristobulus. Aristobulus was the one that he actually sent over to Rome. So it's important to note that initially Herod the Great had several uh, sons that he sort of kept with him as he was sort of king of the Judean area, or the area we would call Israel today for the most part. But in that, um, Aristobulus, on the other hand, was the one guy that was sort of sent to the best of the schools. Aristobulus ultimately will have a son named Agrippa, and then, of course, this is the guy we're looking at tonight, Agrippa II. Aristobulus, by the way, was actually strangled to death by his father in 7 BC because his father was threatened by him. His son, King Herod Agrippa, was actually king of the entire region, much like his grandfather, Herod the Great. But he was the one who we have uh, in Acts chapter 12, if you remember, that received glory for himself and in doing so was struck down by worms and died um, when in front of the Tyre, uh, Tyrans and the Sidonians. Now, at that particular point, his son, Agrippa II, was 17 years old. Now, he was raised, so you know, Agrippa II was raised in the court of Claudius, who was the emperor, uh, really, to be honest, until roughly about 54, 55 AD. And that's really important because that's going to play into this. But get the idea here that this kid, Agrippa II, was in the best of schools. He was in the best of schools, raised, he was primed, to be honest, to be an emperor. So he kind of was in the strictest training for Rome. And in that, there were two things you teach as a child as you're raised in the feet of, uh, of Rome. And those two things are confidence in the Roman Empire, confidence, or we might say faith or trust, uh, and obedience. If you could do those two things, you were confident in the Roman Empire and obedient to the laws of the Roman Empire, it was really a stepping stone. That was all that was left for you, as long as you were in the right, in the right place. So remember that. Confidence and obedience were kind of the ideas of the Roman Empire. Now, this particular young man, because when his father passes away, is only 17, he isn't granted the land that his father was actually responsible for. Now, as a result of that, he's still back in the empire with Claudius, who, again, was the emperor until the wife that he had married, what a little cutie, uh, from what we can tell, feeds him this little salad that appears to have some, well, some very questionable items in it for which he dies suddenly. And this particular woman, interestingly enough, uh, takes the throne with her son, this, Claudius' wife. Now, Claudius, for what it's worth, so you know, his name uh, means lame. Uh, and, uh, and he was kind of like that to some degree. Some believe that he had either Bell's palsy or some form of uh, stroke or something. And so, uh, as he was the emperor, he dies uh, 54 AD, basically 55 AD. His mother takes the throne. Um, I'm sorry, this boy and his mother take the throne, who was this guy's wife. 
And if I'm confusing you, please forgive me. Ultimately, the boy's 17 as well. When he turns 18, he fires mom. And we know that boy to be Nero. And so that's why by this particular point, we're looking in history, we're actually looking at Nero as the emperor. Now, don't, don't miss this. This boy was raised in the empire of Claudius and somebody else takes his, uh, takes his spot when his dad passes away. Because again, this kid... Agrippa II is only 17. Now, ultimately, with that time, what happens is there's a particular question about the guy that's ruling over the area of Judea. And they believe him to be a bit of a troublemaker. And, and because of that, and by the way, for what it's worth, his name is Ventidius Simonius. And, and, and Ventidius, by the way, they, they, have sort of, they question a handful of guys in regards to that. And these guys cast their stones. They cast their votes on whether they think this guy is guilty or not. Of which... This guy, Agrippa II, casts his guilty stone on this guy. So he's known as a guy that really stands against the emperor of Judea. When he is removed, this guy, uh, for what it's worth, Ventidius is removed, the guy that takes his place is Felix. Does that sound familiar? And that was the Felix we had just seen in the last two chapters. Felix is again is removed by Festus, who we saw in the last chapter. Festus has now taken the area of Judea. King Agrippa now has the area of the north. What had happened is, is ultimately as a result of this, he gets sent over uh, to the area of the north. And when he does, this is Agrippa now, he gets to the area of the north. He actually has the opportunity to, to elect or choose the high priest and to see how he wants to keep up the, uh, the temple. Ultimately, he will lose that. Nero will deport him farther north, and ultimately with that, will give him farther, um, much, more, uh, much more land. Now, now, all of that to say this, let me put it in its simplest sense. There was a boy that was raised in the very best of Roman schools to be a Roman emperor. He was in training to be a Roman emperor, and with that, he was taught those two things, confidence and obedience. Are with you with me so far? With that, ultimately, he actually, through his own voting... Of this other character, because of his voting, he shows his confidence in the Roman Empire, his obedience to the Roman Empire, and in doing that, shows ultimately that he is the man for the job and winds up basically getting the job in one way or another, sort of in a roundabout way. Now, the reason I say all of that is that this particular story that Paul's going to tell us now, whether Paul knows it in God or God's just speaking it and Paul's just a tool to it, parallels the life of Agrippa II, but only in regards to Paul's meeting Jesus. Look at it with me. Now, I want to remind you, Paul now is in the Roman theater in Caesarea. To give you an idea of its sort of its size, it is roughly, it's larger, slightly larger than the roundhouse, if you have ever been in the roundhouse here in Camden. So it holds roughly, this particular theater can hold as many as 4,000 to 4,800 people. And so he's a, it's an outdoor theater. Paul is brought in. And according to the last chapter, by the way, it tells us that what happened is, is this guy Festus, who is now the, the new guy in town, he's the ruler of, uh, of Judea. And then the guy of the north, that's Agrippa II. Agrippa has come down to sort of hobnob with this guy now as he's taken the throne of the south. And with that now, they're kind of having their kind of political time. And Festus is looking for advice from a guy, by the way, who will be the last Idumean, which means he has of Jewish blood, the last king of the seven of Herod's. So this is the last Edomitian king. And, and understand, the guy has got a Jewish background. He's, and, and he has such a Jewish background, this particular guy, Festus, 
enters into this thing way over his head because of one character named Paul. Now understand, Festus, we don't have any record that he knows anything about the guy till he shows up. He goes into Jerusalem as a courtesy call to start meeting the religious leaders. And as he does, the first thing they want to talk about, according to scripture, is how they want to kill Paul. I mean, that's the first idea that he has of the Jewish religion. So could you imagine if you meet a group of people and the first thing they want to talk to you about is this, this plot that they have to destroy this guy that they hate. And so they say, you just kind of call him this way, we'll kill him in route. And you think, what kind of religion is this? Now, with that in mind, imagine, wouldn't you feel like if you were there to keep peace, wouldn't you feel over your head if that's how you started this kind of conversation with these religious leaders? I mean, imagine you got issued somewhere, you know, in Pakistan, and the first group you meet is the Taliban, and they're the government. And they're going to tell you how they want to pull a guy out, and they want to murder him right away. You could get the idea right away. So understand with this, all of a sudden, King Agrippa shows up. He's got all this Jewish background. He's got Jewish blood in him. And you think, man, I need to talk to you. I don't even know what in the world to do with this guy. And he's appealed to Caesar. I have to send this guy to Caesar, and we don't even have a charge on him. This guy's been in jail for two years. Now, I want to remind you something. As he's dealing with this, there's another problem in this. And that is that, understand, the Roman court system is very different from Western courts today. You were in prison for one of two, ultimately, as a holding cell, for one of two things. Other, one of them is, within a week, they would bring you out and publicly humiliate you. They would beat you. They would do whatever is necessary in front of everyone. And, and people would gather, as you might imagine. Big crowds would gather for you to be humiliated, and then you'd be let loose. Or you did something worthy of death, so within a week or two at max, ultimately, you would be put, you know, you'd be hung, you know, you'd be murdered, you'd be killed one man or another publicly as well. In other words, you didn't spend more than a couple weeks in jail under any given time. So the idea of anybody being in a Roman jail for a couple of years is a really strange thing. Even if the court system were backed up and you were there for a few months, that would be a bit of an anomaly. But to be there two years is unheard of. There was no such thing as life sentences among the Romans. If you were there for a period of time, they thought, why have other people pay for you? Let's just kill you and get you over with. That was kind of the idea. So for this guy to be in court for two years, now imagine, I'm, I'm starting to talk to, to this guy who's got Jewish blood, and I'm thinking, man, I need, I need your help. And you start by saying, we've got a guy in prison for two years. You can imagine Agrippa saying, you, you've got a guy in here for two years? Okay, what's the problem? And he's like, I don't know. These people want him dead. They hate him. And I can't seem to find anything in him other than this religious disagreement. Apparently, that's something you would know about. And with that, Agrippa goes, hmm, I'd really like to know more about this guy. Now, with that, now, understand, this particular Agrippa that we're looking at, his dad, remember, eaten by worms and died. His father, before that, raised up in, had him raised up in Rome. But the great-grandpa, that's Herod the Great, well, he was the one who tried to murder all of those baby boys when Jesus was born. So there's bad blood all over the Herod line. His, if you think about it, his great-uncles, if you look at it, Antipas was the one that was responsible in the Gospel of Luke. Archelaus was the one that Jesus didn't move back with his parents to the area of Judea for. And then and Philip was the one who lost his, his wife to Antipas. I mean, every one of those guys is in the Bible for something. And so you kind of get the idea in this. And none of them, by the way, are put in there for anything really good. Antipas, you remember, responsible for the death of John the Baptist. Now, with all of that, so understand... Agrippa's got this kind of display, and remember, this is our last Idumean king. He's got this big display of pomp. He's there, by the way, with his sister, 
as he's there with his sister. Um, he, by the way, apparently seems to be a close associate with Josephus, had given Josephus a couple of his own personal letters, and it's Josephus who said that the two of them were romantic, him and his sister. Uh, when he had actually been granted more land by Nero, you know, earlier than this, he celebrated by marrying off both of his sisters, his other sisters except this one. So at this particular point now, he's kind of at the height of his popularity, if you could say it that way, Agrippa is. So Agrippa shows up, he's got his big entourage as a, as a leader would be, a political leader would be, all of his secret servicemen, he's got all of those guys. He shows up in this theater of roughly 4,000 people. You know, you've got Festus, who's the new guy in charge of this area. And he shows up, the big sort of trumpets are blown. You've got a crowd, you've got, a, you've got the, the place is packed full of people, and Paul is brought out. Now understand, if you're going to kill a guy in a week, there is no washing a guy, shaving, any of that. So Paul more than likely hasn't bathed for a couple of years. I mean, this is kind of, how would you like to stand in front of a, I mean, some of you would rather die than stand in front of ten people. And shaved and well-versed. But imagine being in a situation where you've like, you might be covered in scabies. You might have all kinds of blisters from all kinds of the nastiness and the poor sanitary conditions. And you're going to stand in front of 4,000 people. And you're going to give your defense one more time. You've done it before Festus a bit. You've done it before Felix before him. You've done it with the commander and the people. And so, but here's the most amazing thing, and please don't miss this now as we get in our text. Paul never really ever gives a defense. Because Paul isn't concerned with the defense. He's much more concerned with the offense. And that's one of the things I love about Paul. And can I just say, as we get into this, Paul's going to play the same card that this guy Agrippa would know well. But he does it in a way that he's fully on the offense. And can I just say this? The enemy would love for you to be on the defense. Because if he gets you on the defense, you won't score any points. If you're busy defending your faith, defending your God, defending your Bible, you'll never stop. I've learned that. The moment you get in the place where you feel like you have to defend, you'll stop going over to the other side of the field where points are scored, and you'll send all of your people in front of the net. And God, really, to be honest, he's like, look at God. It's like, I've heard someone say trying to defend God is like trying to defend a lion. Just let him loose. I mean, in it, it's like, let him handle himself. Be about his business. But people will be like, well, let's just start talking about the Inquisitions. And you could say, look at I wasn't there. Let's talk about you. Let's get back onto the offense. Now, here you are. Wouldn't this be a time for you to defend yourself? Well, Paul doesn't play that game. Paul is fully on the offense. Take a look at it with me, and I think we'll see that now. Chapter 26, verse 1. Paul now has been brought out. We are there at the theater in Caesarea. By the way, we're still in prayer about going to Israel at the beginning of next year. I ask you to pray about it. We're trying to find the least expensive price we can for it. Um, we, I've taken, I don't know, 15, 20 or so trips there. We've led a tours uh, that we've led, and um, we just it's, it's a radical... Be ready to hike and experience and enjoy and, and experience some more. Anyways, with that in mind, and we go to this exact theater, as a matter of fact. So, chapter 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand to answer himself, which is, by the way, the common way to get attention is to hold out your hand. Interesting. Because if you read in the book of Isaiah, you'll see God do that over and over and over. 9.12, 9.17, 9.21, 10.4, where he'll talk about how his anger is still not turned away. 
and yet his hand is stretched out still. God is constantly reaching out to us. It tells us, by the way, in Proverbs 124, because I have called to you when you were refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Here's God saying, please, please listen to me. And we're like, no, 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 I'm, I've, I'm too busy. But Paul stretches out his hand and he listens and he speaks um, for which Agrippa is to hear. Chapter 26, verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things in which I'm accused by the Jews. Interesting, because I remind you, next to King Agrippa is Festus. Does anyone remember what Festus' name means? Festus means happy. Matter of fact, his name is, full name is Porcius Festus, and his name means happy pig. But uh, interesting, because he could choose a word like festive when he actually speaks here, but the term he uses actually is the term makarion, from which we get the word mark from. Makarion, by the way, is the term for blessed. And I do love this. Paul purposely chooses a word, not just I consider myself fortunate or lucky, but I'm very blessed that I get this opportunity to answer for myself before you and all of the things in which I'm accused by the Jews. Now, can I just say this as Paul's kind of get into it now? There are going to be times, and you need to be ready for this, where you will stand alone. You'll never stand alone in regards to the Lord being there. But there is going to be, and can I just say this as plainly as I can, it is one of the most profound and powerful moments when somebody corners you, not you as a group, not you as a people, not you as a Calvary Chapel or you as a British Christian or whatever, but you individually, and they start asking questions. At that moment, what are you going to say? Because it's very different when you're with your posse. And you kind of know, I mean, can you imagine in our situation, if I got backed into a corner and you guys were there, you would expect me to answer in a certain way. I would feel the pressure to respond in a certain way because you were there. The question is, what if it were just me, anonymously somewhere, backed into a corner? Now, Paul was saying in the Timothy letters, at his first defense, because Paul is going to speak to Nero on more than one occasion, the lunatic who used to cover Christians in pitch and light them on fire in his garden, and while he played his fiddle naked on his chariot to listen to him screaming. The man was really insane. And yet in that he said, on my first offense, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. And I wonder how that would be for Paul when he had seen all of these pastors raised up at his own hand, dare I say. The Timothys and the Tituses and the Demases. And the list goes on and on. And this is one of those moments where you can call in character witnesses and you call, I mean, imagine you send that shout out, you put it out, you know, you post it on your Facebook and nobody responds. And you're like, you know what? I have to stand there before the guy who can publicly kill me right in front of him with great delight. Would you please come and just stand with me? And he gets nobody. And he says, man, not be charged against him. And if Paul were to sit here now to tell us at the end of all of his life now, having sit before the Lord since then, I'm sure he would tell you the same thing, and that is sometimes you're going to have to stand alone in regards to the people around you. Are you ready to give an offense, not a defense, but give an offense at that time? Because the Lord should be all we need, and we declare that he's all we need, but until those moments, it's really hard to tell. 
But I guarantee you when someone does corner you like that, other people are going to watch because there's something about seeing an individual who really isn't going to change their mind. There's a power in that. To see that kind of confidence, strange as it is, wasn't that one of the two words? To see that kind of confidence, that trust, that hope. Well, look at what happens here. Verse 2, I think myself happy or blessed, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things in which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you're an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner for my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know that they knew me from the first, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of the religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God day and or night and day, hope to attain for this Hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Now, don't miss what Paul just said. What Paul just said was, I was put in the best of places, the prime position, the best of schools, to be raised up to be the best of Jews, to be the leader of Jews. Just the same way, Agrippa, that you were raised in the best of places as a Roman to be raised up to be the leader of the Romans. You should understand this. You know that when you were raised, there were two specific areas, and the first of those was confidence. You needed confidence in the Roman Empire for you to be where you are. I have confidence in the promises that God gave me, and because I have those promises, other people had a problem with that. In other words, what Paul said was that when I read Psalm 71.20, which says, You've shown me great and severe troubles. You shall revive me again and bring me up from the depths of the, of the earth. I believed it. When you told me in Psalm 25.8 that he shall swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away every tear from their faces, I believed it. When I, when I read Psalm or Isaiah 26.19 and said the dead will live again together, together with my dead body they shall arise, I believed it. In Ezekiel 37, when God raised up those dry bones and said, can those dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, well, well you know. And God says, well, you know, that's like kind of saying... You answer it, God. And God says, well, of course. Well, then prophesy. And the bones were put together and then the flesh, or, you know, the muscles and the flesh. And then he said, prophesy to the spirit. And the, these things came alive. And there was this army. Going, I, I believe that. When I read in Second Kings about the boy that was passing away and, and, and brought to Elijah. And Elijah laid upon the boy and the boy was revived in Second Kings 4. I believed it. When I believed in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, when it says that many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to the shame of everlasting contempt. I just believed it. And so is it weird then, because I was raised on these promises, I just believed them, and that's why they're so upset. Because there are a lot of other people out there that they hear those words and they acknowledge those words and they can even put them in and answer them in a test, but they just don't. Believe it. What they're lacking, to be honest, is confidence. And with that, I need to ask you, what about you? Do we live genuinely believing that the Lord could come back at any given moment? 
You're like, well, doctrinally, I'd like to stand on this position. Well, no matter what position you stand on, we should be able to say the Lord is coming back. Scripture makes that clear. And if He is, am I living like it? Do I really have confidence in that? Do I have confidence that the gospel still is the power of salvation to those who believe? If I have confidence that the gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe, that should be the thing that I'm bringing to people if I want them to be saved. Not my arguments, not my dusty books, not quoting some other person. If that's the power of salvation, that's got to be it. You see, what God did is he made it simple. It wasn't difficult to understand. The hard part was, am I going to believe it? And you know what? And it's like, okay, look, if the Holy Spirit's still the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the gospel's still the power of salvation, and he who plants and waters is nothing but the Lord who brings the increase, well, then why should I be concerned about myself? Thinking, well, I'm not really equipped. Can you share the gospel? Because if you can share the gospel, then you're equipped to save every human life on the planet that's willing to receive that. And to be honest, most of those people, I, I, can, I can tell you from experience, most of those people don't want another argument. They really just want somebody who believes it. And you know what they'll do? They'll ask you questions, and they sound rude, and they sound cantankerous, and they probably are a bit, but truth be told, they're still one. They're looking for answers. And they'll say, do you really believe in a worldwide flood? Do you really believe that God created everything out of nothing? Do you really not believe in our evolution? Do you know how many of them would die just to hear you say, yes, yes, I do. Do you really believe that fairy tale that this guy put a zoo in a boat and floated it? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Do you really believe that that book, I mean, hasn't it been changed? All the Muslims are telling me it's been changed over and over and over again. Well, that's funny. That's because if you disagree with them, they'll kill you. Do you really believe it? Yes, I do believe that the Bible is true, inerrant, absolutely right. And I truly do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I truly believe that he literally died for my sins and he literally rose again for my sins to give me brand new life and that he literally ascended into heaven and he's standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for me right now. I I literally believe that. And if I didn't literally believe that, what in the world am I doing here? You know what? You want to hear that too, don't you? I can see it on your faces. I mean, not just from a pastor, but you want to see it in each other. And you don't want to see anymore some numbskull that's calling himself a theologian or a pastor or a TV personality or a whatever. I don't care what kind of suit, tie, or what he drives or what kind of quote-unquote ministry he has. Who wants to hear anyone bat on Scripture anymore and call themselves an expert in it? I'm so tired of hearing that stuff about a person who calls himself an expert in God but has never met him. Where's the person with the confidence anymore? Because in this he says, I'm, you know what? Because I was confident, I had hope. I had a hope that there would be a resurrection. And if I had a hope that there would be a resurrection, shouldn't I have a hope that Jesus would raise from the dead? What? How, what? That's not a big leap now, is it? Does God not raise the dead? He did it in the Old Testament with Elisha. How hard, how hard is this? The question is, could we be a church of hope? Because if we're not a church of hope, what we're going to be is a church of stod- stodgy, some people would say the frozen chosen. You know, those that we're like just happy, maybe we're going to go to heaven, and we're really not sure, but we're banking on the fact that this is our best odds. But there's no hope in that. 
And you can tell because the moment you're really confronted with death, you turn into a pansy. You're like, oh, I just don't want to die. I just don't want to die. And if somebody, if I didn't know Jesus and I watched you in that condition, I would be convinced that there would be nothing to give my life to. And Paul looks and goes, you understood this, Agrippa, because you were raised in a situation where you needed to have confidence in the Roman Empire and you saw it. And because you did, other people hated you. And as a result of that, you clung anyways. And when Claudius was killed and Nero took his place and he wanted to see whether you were going to be you know, in allegiance with him, you showed you were still confident for the ways that you voted. You showed that you were confident in the Roman Empire, whether it was going to be one emperor or the other. You were going to, still going to be confident. So should it surprise you that raised as a Jew and you understand Judaism, that there was a hope involved in that? And that's the hope I cling to. What part of that strange to you? But you know what's so sad? How many of us really don't walk around with any hope on us? I mean, it's not a scarf we wear. It's not even an inside button that's sort of tinging on the, on the bottom of our thing just in case another one falls off. And people look and they say, we're just as gutted when we miss our bus. We're just as upset. We're just as nasty when we get our cold. When tax time comes, we stress just as much as the next person. And we tell Jesus that God changed, or we tell, sorry, we tell others that Jesus changes lives. And they have a right, they have a right to say how. And we have a right to do some honest investigation and introspection and say, well, let's honestly ask, how? Because if there's nothing different, if what we're doing is handing out another track next to the guy who's handing you out an invitation for an extra tequila, at least they think they get something free from them. And Paul looks and he goes, okay, I was raised in this. Now, how many of you here were raised in the church? Now, what I mean by that is that you went to church as a kid regularly. Let me see by a show of hands. Big and high, big and high. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Wow, look at that. Okay, now how many of you came to know Jesus much later in life? Let me see by a show of hands. That's radically the most of you. Okay, now let me ask you, those who raised your hand in the first question, those who were raised in the church, could you honestly say you were raised in hope? Honestly. Was there a hope that you clung to as you were raised in the church? Well, my prayer is, if this is your first church experience, that that's what you'll get here. My prayer is, if this is your 40th church experience, that's still what you're going to get here. Because without the hope of Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, without a hope of a resurrection, we are the most pitiful people on the planet, says 1 Corinthians 15. Because other people at least are chasing after something, and we're chasing after nothing then. So Paul gets to this point, and notice, by the way, he is not on the defense. Do you see anywhere in this? I'm innocent. Don't you see? They've been picking on me poorly treated. Do you know how bad the food is these last two years? You know how little sun I've gotten? Look at my tan is gone and my odd. Oh, do you hear any of that? I don't even get first run videos. Verse 6 is, And I stand now as a judge for the hope of the promise 
made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, again, earnestly serve God and I. You know why we work so hard? We work so hard because we really believe this. At least that's what I thought. Verse 8 says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Does that not sound like Paul on the offense? Paul just kicked the ball, and, and, and at this point, Agrippa has to either block it or let it in. Why should it be thought incredible to you, Agrippa? that God raises the dead. Indeed, I thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, notice I cast my vote against them. Agrippa, you understand allegiance and confidence by your voting record. And then you should understand so is mine. Now, traditionally, by the way, and the term literally in the Greek is I cast my black stone. If you were put on a jury or had the responsibility of a verdict, they gave you two stones, a white stone and a black stone. And then what happened is at the end of it, when you had to cast your vote on whether this person was innocent or guilty, they took the bag and they just passed the bag around and you put one of those two stones in there. And then when the whole thing was done, the person poured them out and said, that's ten black stones guilty. Who, nobody wants to see a black stone. Do you get it? It's interesting. Because when Jesus talks to the, and this is Jesus speaking, to the compromising church of Pergamos in the book of Revelation, listen to this. This is Revelation 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on that stone, a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. And I can develop that second part, and it's even more beautiful, but can suffice it to say, imagine Jesus saying, I know you guys are compromising. I know you're in a situation where you feel everything's convoluted and, and really weird, and your doctrines are getting whack, and people are getting all nuts, and you're seeing stuff on TV. He goes, but look, at if you're going to be willing to overcome that with me, when you look at me, I'm going to throw my white stone and say, here you go, man. You're innocent. And I think, oh, man, I want that. Okay, look at the next part. So it says, notice, by the way, again, Paul is shut up in prison. He put them to death. He said in verse 11, I punished them in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And I wonder what that would be like now for Paul as he reviews those things in his head. All the times he had the opportunity to blaspheme now and he hasn't. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed from Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And I wonder how much of that Agrippa would understand. Raised within a Jewish context, we know from 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in inapproachable light, but it tends to be that anyone that's sent from him tends to be glowing. So this person showed up and he was brighter than the noonday sun around me. And all it says, and those that, who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now please understand, there's something beautiful in this. God could have spoken to Paul in Greek, because Paul obviously spoke Greek. He could have spoken to him in Latin, because I believe Paul must have known some Latin. He spoke to Paul in the language of his childhood. 
He spoke to Paul in the language that Paul spoke when he quieted the entire Jewish crowd in front of the temple there. When he spoke his defense to them. And what did he do there? He gave his testimony. What is he doing here? He gave his testimony. And can I just say it this way? God knows how to speak to you. Now, if God spoke to you in Hebrew, chances are you wouldn't get it. But God could speak to you in Greek. God could speak to you in Portuguese. Or God could speak to you in another manner. You ever talk to some guy and he's looking for direction and he'll tell you, yeah, let me tell you, I was like, oh God, do I go to China? And then I was, I was on the bus and next to me, it said, go to China on a big sign. And then someone called and said, hey, are you going to China? And oh, sorry, that's a wrong number. And it's like, and you're like, gosh, listen to this guy. It's like everyone, and he goes walking and somebody had written in chalk, go to China. And you're like, gosh, God doesn't speak to me that way. And that same person will talk to you and they'll say, so what's it like for God to speak to your heart? You know, and some of you, you just know, it's like, you know, the Lord spoke. It wasn't an audible voice. Yeah, it was. Wow, you're hearing voices. Oh, that's strange. Not as strange as somebody putting a sign up next to you. Well, why is it that one guy gets a sign and another guy gets a voice inside? Because God speaks your language. That's why. And for some of you, that's what he needs. Some of you, you'll just be reading the word and you'll be like, bam, whoop, that's it. Now, some of you, you'd be like, you're reading and you're going, Huh. Hmm. And then you open your refrigerator and God will speak on the back of a box. Because he knows how to speak your language. And see, understand, the burden of communication between humans is twofold. I have to speak to Dash in a way that Dash, I believe Dash will understand. Top of the morning, eh? Dash has to receive the information that I have to get and try to interpret that information. So there's two margins of error. There's the information I'm trying to give him, but I have to say it right and he has to hear it right. Does that make sense? That's why texting can be such a problem, right? You're like, I don't like the tone of your text. What tone? You know, I'm I'm sure he was angry when he said that. Why? Because you put an next. You get it. My cap lock was on. I'm sorry. All right. Well, you know, you get that. But it's like, but, but understand with God, he doesn't have that problem. Because whatever information he gets, the burden's entirely on him because he knows how you'll receive it. So he knows how to speak exactly to you in your language. And not just Portuguese or whatever, Greek or Irish, which can be its own language sometimes, and not just Gaelic. Finnish. It's going to offend someone, maybe not any, but... Whatever it is. I mean, and it's not just that God can say that, because to be honest, some of you are here and English isn't your first language. And I'm not speaking Italian or French or any of that at the moment. But God knows how to tell you what he needs to tell you here tonight. Isn't that beautiful? And so when Paul says, God spoke to me in Hebrew, man, it's like, you know what? And God even knows how to speak in such a way that it gets to a part of you that, that means more than just part of your language. Can I say this? My mother passed away when I was 11. I never really had a childhood, and I'm not asking for, I'm not trying to, to solicit pity. Um, my mom was, was dying of cancer from the day that I knew her. And so she was a really ill individual. There was, it was being an adult from the time you, you know better. I mean, that's just the way it is. That was just never, that was just never an option. And then it was that, that's the way you live. I'm much more of, a, of an immature person now than I ever was then. But, no, I'm sorry. What's the word? Youthful? All right, so, 
when I actually not knowing Jesus, I'm 19 years old and somebody takes me to a music concert series. And I mean, there it's embarrassing. Some of the stuff that was there was just like, wow, this is this is bad. But one gal, skin as dark as night, could have come from my neighborhood, sat down at the piano and played Mary Had a Little Lamb and Jesus Was His Name. I bust into tears. Now understand, I don't remember ever crying before that. Breaking bones, watching people die, close friends, best friends. That just wasn't who I was. So now I think I'm losing my mind because Mary had a little lamb. But do you see what God was doing for me? God took me back to a place where I was never before. The, where the childhood I didn't have. He says, let's go back to that kid for a second. And it was the most amazing, silly little song. It was just the gospel. Down to, on three days, he rose again, rose again. I mean, and, and I was like, and by the, the message was so simple and so clear. But see, that was my language. And even though there were thousands of people in that field, God was speaking my language at that moment. And, and it, was, it, was, you know, it was everything that I needed. And the reason I say that is, when God speaks to Paul here in Hebrew, I don't think he was just trying to make sure that Paul understood his words. Paul was appealing to a much deeper part of him. And that's what I pray for you, by the way, and for me. When we talk about confidence in God's word and the hope, man, it's got to be so much more than something we can intellectually agree with. It's got to grab us by the, the throat of our heart, if I can say it that way. And throttle us a little bit. Shake us up and go, well, where am I at with this? And so there in Paul, in this Hebrew moment, God's so... Why? Isn't that interesting? That's the question. It isn't that God doesn't know why, but Paul doesn't. Why are you doing this? And that's why you needed to speak in your language. Why are you doing this? Why are you drinking like this? Why are you sleeping around like this? Why are you still trying to prove you're the smartest or the toughest or the most successful? Why are you doing this? And see, that can't just be something that you overhear. That's got to be something your heart hears. And why are you doing this? And Paul's question is an honest one at that point. He's been knocked down more than one way. And so he says, Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to get kick against the goads. And remember, the goad is a sharp stick you poke a dumb animal with to get him to go where you want. And every time... When Gamaliel stood up and said, you know, maybe we're fighting God on this one in Acts 5.34. That was a poke in the rear end. When Stephen was being murdered and his face was glowing like an angel and he said, Let, hold not this charge against them. That was a poke in the rear end. Poking you to the cross. Every saint that he shut up in prison Every believer he put to death. In every synagogue, every person he punished. Every person he compelled to blaspheme. Every foreign city that he went to. One poke after the other till Paul would finally surrender. Can I say this, please? If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, 
if you've not surrendered to the love of God through the cross of His Son, can I be the last pain in the butt you get? You'll finally say yes. For Paul, he was so thick rear-ended, Jesus had to poke him himself and say, are you tired of fighting this? You ever share with somebody and it just seems like you hit the mental button the moment you mention Jesus? Could it just be that their rear end's just that sore from being poked again and again by the Holy Spirit? So I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. I'm not a nebulous mist. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet to reveal, I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Now, don't miss this. Jesus says, no, look, at, I mean, imagine Jesus just met you. You're just getting saved and he already tells you you're called to ministry. Isn't that kind of fun? He goes, oh, I've already got a ministry for you. And so you need to get up. But in that, I just want to know, I want you to know, I'm going to deliver you from some people. Now, any part of you that thinks that's kind of foreboding, I'm going to deliver you from those people. Which people? You haven't met them yet. Well, why would you need to deliver me from them unless this is going to be a bad situation? And you kind of get the idea, he's like, this is going to be a rough road for you, man. You're going to stand in front of some pretty amazing people like he's doing right now. And could that be part of his confidence that he knows that Jesus said, I'm going to deliver you from this anyways. If I'm going to deliver you from these people, then Paul, you better listen. If it's Jesus's job to to defend me, then I could be on the offense. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again. If it's Jesus's job to defend me, then it's my job to be on the offense. He's my rear guard. So I'm going to deliver you from the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles to whom I send you. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness. Now look at If I'm under the power of Satan, I'm not receiving forgiveness. But when I turn to God, I receive forgiveness of sins. And I receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, look at verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, here's, my, here's the second point. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Did you get what Paul just did? Paul said, you remember when you were raised? Do you remember what it was? It was confidence. And obedience. Didn't you remember, you remember that? You were raised in the right place for that so you could be confident in the empire and you could be obedient to their laws. So let me tell you, I was raised under a hope and I was confident in that hope. And when Jesus came and talked to me, I was obedient. Shouldn't you understand the idea of confidence and obedience? You know that. So Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that and neither were you. And if you weren't disobedient to that, you should understand where I'm at. I just love this. Now, I have no idea whether Paul fully had the time to really work this out in his head or whether the Lord just spoke. Well, clearly the Lord did either way. And he said, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 20. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do the works fitting of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, To this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than that which the prophets and Moses said would come. That Christ would suffer, 
that he would be the first to raise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. No. There are two people listening to this, two major audiences. There's Festus, who's the secular ear, and then there's Agrippa, who's in essence the Jewish ear, the religious ear. The secular ear at this point goes potty. Understand that. As they would. But please hear me on this. Here's his confidence. What do you think would happen if you asked Paul, Paul, do you really believe in a hell? Paul, do you really believe God will send people there? Isn't he a God of love? Do you realize it's smarter to basically just say, I don't know, in regards to the wise? But say, I do know this in regards to the questions of, do you believe in hell? Yes, I do. Why? Because the Bible says so. Do I believe God's going to send someone to hell? Actually, I, I don't. But I do believe this. I believe that God will stick the cross in your way. And if you refuse that cross, you will go to hell. But don't blame God for it. He invited you in. You'll send yourself there. The Lord's just going to give you the response of the opportunity to say that. But in the end of it all, if you say, well, God, now have mercy on me. It's too late once you die. Now's your time. And what would happen if you had the chutzpah, the confidence to actually say that to somebody? Because when you did, that person has to sleep that night with realizing how important that decision is. Instead of going, oh, yeah, yeah. You know what's amazing? I've seen the biggest guys that you swear could just punch a hole in one of those pillars crumble like a little girl in front of people over questions like that. And I've seen little girls that would crumble under other things stand up like a mighty mountain in front of those things. Man, please. Of all the things we've ever shown strength in, nothing could be more important because people are actually looking for confidence that breeds hope and obedience. And I'm going to be obedient to tell you, you need Jesus. Well, what about this guy? What about that guy? You can say, I don't know, but I can tell you this, you need Jesus. Well, that guy said something nice. I don't know. I've never met him, but you need Jesus. That part I'm sure of. Well, what about that person in China? I don't know. I can tell you this, my God's a faithful God. And if that person would say, yes, I guarantee you that Jesus will get to him one way or another. What's amazing is, it's like, well, what person? I like to ask people, well, what about that person in China? Well, what's his name? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of making him up. There's your problem. What about you? I know your name. God knows yours. Do you see? Does he want to play that game? What about those people in India? Get saved and go tell them. Now, as if this wasn't enough, now Paul is set up for the, for the kill. Festus, in verse 24, that's the secular error, he made his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. In other words, you are insane. You're not dumb, but you're insane. Verse 25, he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. And by the way, can I just dare say there are times where the secular mind will try to distract you from where you're going. And you know, that's a faithful, that's a faithful uh, tool against you. What will happen is you're driving the goals in front of you and you're driving for the goal and someone goes, but look over this way, drive this way. And you're like, but I'm straight for the goal, man. And Festus is like, let's get you to defend your sanity. Notice that would be another area to get you thinking about yourself, defending. And at that point, he could just say, can I explain to you why I'm so sane? But he's not, because he's, 
he's like, Festus, can I just dare say this isn't between you and me right now. It's between me and Agrippa. And notice that's where he's going to go next. Paul is focused. And it says here, so he is, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I speak freely, that's Agrippa, knows these things. I'm convinced that none of these things escaped his attention since these, this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Oh, I know that you do. Man, can you imagine, at this point, who's backed in the corner now, baby? Agrippa's now. Here's King with all his entourage. He's coming stuck in the corner. All of his secret service men can't get him out. He's like, oh. He's like, Agrippa, you believe this, don't you? And who's got the confidence now? You believe the prophets? Do you? Do you believe the prophets? Christians, do you believe the prophets? Do you? Do you believe when he said, if you wait on the Lord, he'll renew your strength? You'll mount up like with wings and eagles. You'll run and not get tired, walk and not faint. Do you believe when the prophet Isaiah said, oh, anyone who thirsts, come to the water, come and drink. And you with no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and bread without money, without cost. Why do you work so hard for what does not satisfy? Labor for what is not bread. Listen, listen intently to me and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Listen, turn your ear and hear me. Your soul may live. Do you believe Joel when he said, whoever, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Do you believe him? I do. Do you believe Jesus' own words when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe those words? Is there a hope in that? Are you confident? Now I'm going to ask a question beyond do you believe? Are you confident? Do you hear the difference? Confidence will inspire hope. Believe maybe you can just say, well, I, I, I understand those words and I agree. Are you confident? Are you confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? He's not going to change his mind. Are you confident that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Are you confident that you are more than a conqueror in him who loved you? Are you confident? Because you know the enemy is going to try to check your confidence on those things, right? Are you confident that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Are you, faith- are you confident in that? Are you confident that when you confess your sins, he casts them as far as east is from west and chooses to remember them no more? Are you confident in that? Are you confident that if you really do call on his name, you'll be saved? Well, let me ask you, are you saved? It shouldn't be a maybe now, is it? If you're confident. Do you believe the prophets? I do. And I believe that His Holy Spirit is working in me to change me and His Holy Spirit's working in you to change you and He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And His gifts and His callings are irrevocable. And He knows what He's doing. He always knows what He's doing. So let's close this up. The saddest words, some of the saddest words in Scripture. The Christ says, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You know, if nothing else, Agrippa knew what Paul was trying. But don't miss those words because people will tell them to you too. They'll say it this way. Are you preaching at me? Right? 
Can you know what? Stop being a jellyfish. Just tell him, yes, yes, I am. Look at Paul's example. So, what's the one of that verse? What Agrippa says. What's the one word that's so sad? Almost, almost isn't enough. Do you get that? Look at almost isn't enough. Almost confident isn't enough. Almost obedient. Hear me. Almost obedient isn't enough either. Do you get it? Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me in this theater today, all who hear me today might become almost and altogether such as I am. Except for these chains. These are the final words that Agrippa hears here from Paul. In other words, Paul in his chains, stinky and smelly and hairy, looks at Agrippa and says, I wish you were like me. How many of us would look at Agrippa and say, I wish I was like you, but not Paul? As a believer, and I'm going to just say it as brash as I can, I don't believe that any Christian should look at an unbeliever and wish you were them. I think that is one of the most ridiculous discredits to Jesus. Well, you could say, well, I wish I had his power. I wish his, but I would never wish to be that person. But here's the crazy part. If I had that power, would I use it for Jesus? And I'm fairly confident that if I would, he would have given it to me, which really hurts, to be honest. I wish I had that guy's money. God's like, if you had that money, you wouldn't walk like walk with me like that, like you think you would, because he knows me better. I'm like, mm. well, can you change me so that I can? Because <laughs> I'm sure I would share it. And God's like, not enough. Well, I wish that you would be like me. From the external, there is nothing to envy. The guy's been in prison for two years. He's a political prisoner. He's stinky. He has no, by the way, from the political perspective, he has no real hope. From an eternal perspective, he has all hope. Because he's confident and obedient. And the scripture says that God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. He's going to withhold nothing. When Paul had said this now, there's only one thing left to do for Agrippa other than surrender, and that's leave the room. And there'll be times like that when somebody finally realizes they can't back you into the corner, and you're like, you know what? Yes, I am trying to preach to you because if I really loved you, I would want you to have my Jesus. I can't claim to love you, believe that Jesus is the only way. And not want you to have him. That does not equate. I can't make you take him. But I want you to. Are you trying to preach to me? Heaven, yes. Oh, you're just one of those preachy, closed-minded, blah, blah, blah. Call it what you want. But when you're done calling me names, know this. You have a choice to make. Are you going to accept Jesus or not? And some will say, yes. And inside you're going, really? <laughs> Didn't look like that a minute ago. And others will be like, up yours and off they go. 
But I tell you what, you know what you were? A goad. You were a stick poking a rear end that you just talked to. Agrippa stands up. When it said these things, verse 30, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. And when he had gone aside, he talked among them, they talked among themselves, and they said, This man's done nothing deserving of death or chains. Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. No, he wouldn't have. And the reason is God himself. Remember, two years ago, Jesus said, Two years ago, Jesus said, You're going to Rome. Now, I remind you, because Paul is confident in the promises of God, Paul knows he's going, but it's been two years. How long was it for Joseph? And he had those dreams. But God knows. His timing's right. Now look at can I say this as we go to prayer? If you call yourself a believer here today, I am praying that God overwhelm you with confidence. Not just, I believe, I ascribe, because often I've learned people that kind of say that stuff will be quick to deny it under certain circumstances, but a confidence is unshakable if you walk with this living God. And the, the world, can I just say, has a right to see confident Christians that aren't looking for self-esteem. They're looking for God-esteem. Because the issue is not that I'm confident in myself. This is what I'm confident of in myself, that nothing good dwells that's in and of myself. But that's okay, because I could be all the trash, rubbish that anything could be, because I'm the most loved rubbish on the, in the universe. And that's good enough for me. I don't have a low opinion of myself. I don't want to have any opinion of myself. I want to have all opinion on Jesus. And the enemy's going to get you thinking about yourself. Defend yourself. Talk about yourself. You're dumb. You're an idiot. You're a, you know, whatever. You're socially unacceptable. And you're going to try to defend all of that. And Jesus is like, you realize this is just trying to get you back on the backside of the field. Get to the front of the field where you belong. Get in the key and shoot. And if you don't understand those sports metaphors, the idea is get on the offense. Because God, God really is looking for front house players. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure you ever have, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That can happen right now. When you could walk out of here confident, I will. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I'm going to start by asking your forgiveness for all of the times, Lord, when we have not been confident. When we as believers, and I speak as the church in mass, not just us here, but the church in, in England, the church around the world, has been busy um, compromising with the world because we're afraid of losing their affection or their respect when really in all honesty our compromise should breed their lack of respect. And Lord, I just pray that you would instill this fellowship with confidence.
confidence in a God who was confident in that if he died for us, we could be redeemed. Confident in a God that cleansed us absolutely at the cross. And we don't have to earn anything because this is all grace. Confident in a spirit that was left in us as a guarantee. Confident in a father who has adopted us without the intent of ever changing his mind. Confident in a Savior who will never leave us nor forsake us. Confident in a God who began a good work that will be faithful to complete it. Confident in a Savior, an intercessor who is beside the Father interceding for us. Confident in a spirit that intercedes even when we can't even groan or utter a sound. Confident in a lover who goes to prepare a place for us and then will come to receive us to himself that where he is we may be also. Confident in a groom who will never change the same yesterday, today, and forever. A high priest who has sympathized with our weaknesses, but perfect in every way. A perfect payment, perfect master. Confident in a God who offers me a new life, free from the trappings of the one I was. Confident in a Savior who will come back and rule and reign as King. Confident in the word you've given us to teach and equip for every good work. Thoroughly. Confident that you want to use me not because I have anything to offer you but my surrender, but you and your delight choose to use me anyways. And confident that you will make good of every situation because you work all things to my good as I love you and am called according to your purpose. And I pray that you instill such a confidence in us that then the world will stand up and take notice. And that confidence would breed hope. And that confidence would breed such a hope that that hope would produce obedience. Obedience to those things my flesh disagrees with. Obedience to those choices that I don't want to make but have to. Obedience to the things that I know are bad but still don't want to sacrifice on the altar of love. Because with the hope of a God that lives within me, lavishes me with love and calls me his child, everything I lay down at the altar, you have something better in its stead. And I want to have that hope, that confidence, even tonight. So I surrender. I come out with my hands up. And I say, I'm yours. 
change my prayer life to be a confident prayer life, full of hope. Change my reading to be a confident reading, full of hope and obedience. Change the way I view the world, that through your eyes I would have hope, and to your voice be obedient. Change the way I look at church, that through your eyes I would have hope, and to your voice I would be obedient. I openly confess, Jesus, that you died for my sins, just as the prophets promised, and I am confident in that. And that you literally died, and I am confident in that. And you literally died for my sins, and I am confident in that. And you literally rose again, and I am confident in that. And you literally are at the right hand of the Father, Jesus. I am confident in that. So I say yes. Yes to you. Have me. Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, be my love. Jesus, be my light. Jesus, be my love. My life my everything as I'm yours in your name. Amen.